Amen. Good songs. Uh, I will promise you that my notes predate my knowledge of the selection of that song because that song uh, will play right in to where we will finish today's message. Uh, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, uh, we don't have a lot of different places to run to in the scriptures today. There will be one main text, uh, one other place we'll spend just a few minutes, and then one we'll hit briefly. So I want to encourage you, even though these verses will be on the screen, would you join us today? So grab a copy of the Bible. You're going to want to be able to look backwards and forwards and uh, to repeat when some things may not be on the screen. So if you would join me, Matthew chapter 1 this morning, Matthew chapter 1, while you're turning there, uh, let me say a couple of thanks, uh, two or three categories of people. Uh, thank you to those who have prayed for my mother, Louise Bartlett. Uh, she, uh, so last Saturday night, I headed up to Asheville, North Carolina, about 9.45 p.m. So I'm very thankful to John Deal, pitching in and covering for us in the pulpit last week. And then um, she was able to go home on Tuesday, so that was really good. And then she was taken back into the hospital on Thursday night, I believe it was, and so she is still there, but doing better. Um, she just got some, had some obstructions, and I think they have that cleared out, so we're praising the Lord for that, and Lord willing, maybe she goes home tomorrow. That's what we're hoping, uh, so thank you to those who have prayed. Thank you to John Deal uh, for covering, and also thank you for those of you that have already prepared some things, and we'll be ministering to the Haney family. Uh, please be in prayer for Tim Haney. Uh, I know his uh, sister Tammy is with us this morning. Their family will be using our facility here in just a little while for the uh, funeral of their father, Melvin. And so be in prayer for them, and uh, thank you for those that are serving them in various ways. Uh, I think that's my thank yous, I believe. I may have forgotten another, but uh, thank you for being here. All right. So about three weeks ago, we introduced the book of Matthew, a new study. We gave some background, and we looked at 17 verses, which are a genealogy of the king. That's going to be Matthew's, one of Matthew's main purposes. So I want to touch this for 20 seconds. Of the four Gospels, Matthew's focus seems to be toward the Jews, but not just the Jews. And he's going to keep using this idea of fulfillment and how Jesus' life as the promised King, as the promised Messiah, the Christ, fulfills the texts and prophecies of the Old Testament. And so we looked at that three weeks ago, and then a couple of weeks ago, we also returned to the genealogy, and, and we found various things, more truths out of those 17 verses. Listen, 47 names. So this week, I think we have about eight verses that we're going to look at, and we're going to find three prominent names. And there's going to be an unnamed angel because I want to repeat what I said then, whether we're talking about 47 people or three people, the one name of Jesus is the key to the genealogy. It's his gene genealogy, and the one name of Jesus, the Christ, is the key to the birth. It is his birth. That's what we're looking at, and I'm going to read it in just a moment. So if you wanted a way, not the way we're going to use as an outline this morning, but a way to look at these eight verses this morning, it's going to tell us what happened. Because what happened is very important. And then in a moment you're going to read how it happened. And then ultimately by the end of these eight verses you're going to see why it happened. That's not how we're going to outline it today, but that's kind of a way we sh as we should look at this. What happened? 
the birth of the king, this promised king. How did it happen? Why did it happen? All of these are very important. Look with me if you would. Verse number 18, so verse number 1 said the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Those 17 verses, now verse 18, now the birth. So that was the genealogy this week. Now the birth of Jesus Christ. So let's read slowly, thoughtfully. I know some of your minds are a million places. Some have calloused hearts this morning. Some have just cold, rusty, creaky souls. You're saved, but you just not really been walking with the Lord. There's just some coldness there. Others of you have just walked with the Lord. Man, you're ready to dive into the Word of God. Wherever you are between that spectrum, you may be here and say, I don't know the Lord is my Savior. I'm just here checking things out, or I was invited. Would you right now, even as we read the text, pray, Lord, would you speak to me through this text, through the other text? Show me your plan. Speak to me my need today. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ, the anointed Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that's a way of saying before they had sex, Before they, so they betrothed, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, being a just man and unwilling. That that phrase struck me a few times. I won't park there later, but that's important. Being a just man and unwilling. Hey, Joe, you can't have it both ways. Well, he wants it both ways. Being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. Resolved to divorce her. Why you got to divorce her? Because he's a just man. He resolved to divorce her quietly. Why quietly? Because he doesn't want to put her to shame. Just and unwilling. But as he considered these things, maybe he's considering not just what's happened, procedurally, how is he going to go about this? Behold, an angel, unnamed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, he's in the genealogy, read it a couple of weeks ago. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. ESV here has quotations in. That's probably where it ends. Others say maybe the angel actually is saying verses 22, 23. We're not really sure. Most people stop the angel's words at verse 21. And now Matthew jumps back in. Again, who knows which one's talking here. Maybe it's Matthew. All this took place to fulfill 
what the Lord had spoken. We could have a message on the inspiration of Scripture. Who's talking here? The Lord had spoken by the prophet. No, 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 that was Isaiah talking. No, the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Remember Isaiah 7? Behold, so if this is Matthew or whether it's the angel, this happened with Joseph and Mary to fulfill this from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear. She'll be a virgin when she conceives. She'll be a a virgin when she bears a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Three things. He took his wife, but knew her not. That's a euphemism that we'll see Wednesday night. Chip Ingram will touch on in our video. That's a euphemism for a husband and wife. This is a good sexual reunion that takes place. So three things in obedience to the angel of the Lord. He took his wife, but knew her not until... Boy, I read some false doctrine about that word until. To me, it's pretty clear. He knew her not, no sexual relation. Until, now, after this, they did. But he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And, number three, he called his name Jesus. So that tells us what happened. How it happened, why it happened. I do have three points, and I want to talk about the three people that you saw in the text. And I want to begin with Mary and state the obvious. Can we just state the obvious this morning? Mary was favored by God. Mary was highly favored by God. As you're writing that, now I have to make a confession to you. All right, here's my confession. I tend, and some of you are the same way as I am, I tend to treat Mary and the subject of Mary about like I do water baptism, and church membership. You're like, oh, how do you do that? All three are very important. I believe all three are biblical. But I tend to treat Mary about like water baptism and about like church membership. You say, Jeff, what's your point? I tend to downplay them. I tend to downplay Mary. I may get to heaven one day, and as a pastor... The Lord may tell me, hey, you should have emphasized water baptism more than you did there, Jeff. Or emphasized church membership. So you're sitting here saying, well then, yeah, if these things are great and important and biblical, then why in the world would you not emphasize them properly? Well, I'll tell you. Because some people have overemphasized water baptism, impressing upon people that you have to get baptized in water to go to heaven, well then, when someone comes to Christ here at Graceview, I don't immediately get them into the baptistry. We're going to have a baptism in two weeks. If you need to get baptized, talk to Mike Sturgill. It's important. It's important. It's a step of obedience. We believe in it. Why the gap? Because some people, and by the way, not are people just impressing Many people are impressed that way. They literally, you you ask them. I've said this ten times. Ask people in Anderson County about their salvation and what they're trusting. And and when did this happen? And see how many start talking about the day they got baptized. So I don't want those to be connected in anybody's mind. Church membership, I think, is seen in Scripture. 
There's 120 in the upper room. There's 3,000 day of Pentecost, 5,000 males. There's a man in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He needs to be taken off the roll. There's some widows in 1 Timothy. They need to be on the widow's roll, and some are not put on the widow's roll. Fear came upon the church over Ananias and Sapphira. So you have those in the church, and you have those outside the church, or like, I'm not becoming part of that. And fear, when the Holy Spirit kills Ananias and Sapphira for lying to the Holy Spirit, those in the church. You see what I'm saying? There's in the church, there's out of the church. There's a number. Somebody's keeping a tab of all of this. I think it's important. I'm a member of a church. I added up this morning. I've officially probably been members of four churches, counting this one. But I also thought of this. This, this morning begins month number two. Well, forget that. Two and a half years, okay? I've been officially full two and a half years here. Between 120, 130 times I've stood here on a Sunday morning. Not one time have you guys seen me down here. Now this morning we're opening the doors of the church. Oh, that's awesome. You just got saved. You want to become a church member? I, I don't ever stand down here and say the doors of the church open. You want to come and join Graceview? Hey, good morning. Good to see you. What's your name? Hey, guys, we have John Doe. Anybody in favor of John Doe joining Graceview? All in favor? Those opposed? Good. Welcome. Good to see you. Middle? Oh, yeah, last name again. Doe. Good to have you. We don't do that here. So is it not, not important? It is important. But I don't want to confuse people. And so you say, Jeff, what does that have to do with Mary? Guys, there's a lot of erroneous doctrine out there about Mary. We won't call the Catholics by name, but there's a lot of false doctrine about Mary. It is erroneous. They're not the only ones. They're the primary ones. You say, like what? You've heard it. They refer to Mary as the mother of God. You say, well, Jeff, isn't Jesus... Listen, I know who Jesus is. I'm going to try to make it clear by the end of the message. But when you call Mary, Mary's the mother of Jesus. Jesus is his human name. We're going to try to make that clear. But when you call Mary the mother of God, you're totally sending a wrong message. It's, it's terrible. God does not have a mother. I have a mother. She's back in the hospital. I mentioned that a while ago. She predates me. I come from her. God does not have a mother. Second thing that kind of bothers me. They still refer to Mary as the Virgin Mary. Still refer to her as a Virgin Mary. You say, Jeff, what's the problem with that? Do you know there's a verse in the Bible that says that the brothers of Jesus, we have their names. James wrote a book of the New Testament. Joseph, Simon, Judas. Not Judas Iscariot, the other Judas who wrote the book of Jude right before the book of Revelation. So we have his four brothers. Same verse also says, and his sisters, are they not all with us? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Sisters, plural. Okay, at least two. But if he only had two sisters, then that would mean, and his sisters, are they not both with us? But it doesn't say that. Are they not all with us? I'm here to tell you. Jesus has at least four half-brothers and at least three half-sisters. Why do you continue to call her the Virgin Mary? It is wrong. Her and Joseph had, had children. And then if that's not enough, many erroneously teach people. They literally tell their people to pray to Mary. Pray to Mary. Now I'm going to tell you, if you thought Mary was the mother of God, yeah, maybe you would pray to her. If you believe that false doctrine, I guess that leads to this other one. And then some, not only praying to Mary, but praying through Mary. And again, the thought goes like, there's no Bible verses for this. The thought goes like this. Hey, our mothers are close to us, and so if you want access to someone, their mother will get you there. So you want access to Jesus? Then go to Mary, and Mary will get you to Jesus. Listen carefully. 
You want to fine-tune your prayer life? It is not wrong to pray to Jesus, but even Jesus himself said in that day after his resurrection, you'll ask me nothing, but you'll talk to the Father through me. The Bible says there is one mediator, one go-between between man and God. It is the man Christ Jesus. It is not Mary to Jesus, to God. You can talk to God through Jesus. Mary is nowhere in this equation. I did not plan to get that long-winded or that. It irritates me. It irritates me. And so I downplay Mary. But I shouldn't minimize and downplay Mary. Why? Because Mary's an important figure. Now, Matthew, if you, if you catch it, we're getting Joseph's viewpoint. We're getting Joseph's story. But if you would put a marker there, go over to Luke chapter 1, and we'll see how Luke emphasizes more of Mary's story. So go with me, if you would, Luke chapter 1. And Luke's going to show us several things very clear about this pregnant virgin. Let those two words sink in. Who are we getting ready to talk about over here in Luke? Mary, the pregnant virgin. What? Something's not adding up. Luke chapter 1. Let's notice some things that are very clear about Mary. Would you look at Luke chapter 1, verse number 46 and 47? These are, Luke, these are Mary's words after she goes to her relative Elizabeth's house. Again, Christmas wasn't that long ago, so perhaps you heard this passage, verse 46. And Mary said, and I'm going to come back to this in a minute and read it a little more in context. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Let that sink in. This is not Mary saying the Savior of my people, Israel, throwing off the Roman yoke. This is Mary saying, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Do you know that, again, the Catholics teach that Mary did not have original sin? I read that just recently. Went on a website, one of their representatives had on there... Well, what about Romans 3? They address Romans 3. They say we're all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's not talking about all people. That's everyone else except Jesus and Mary. Why are they coming up with that? They feel like to protect Jesus' deity, then Mary needs to have no original sin. And they have this thing called the Immaculate Conception. Here's the only problem. Then what about her parents? How did she get this lack of original sin? Is there a line that is sinless? Listen, it's a bunch of nonsense. I'm supposed to be moving on to the positive things about Mary. I'm hitting this one more time. Here's the point. What do we learn out of Luke? She is a sinner in need of a Savior just like you, just like me. I also saw where some very erroneously referred to her as co-redemptrix, co-redeemer with Christ because she's standing at the cross He's paying for sin on the cross and she's feeling for him. And so she's part of the pain. Really? Is her standing at the cross helping pay for my sins? Absolutely not. Again, I've got to move on. This is not a Mary, it's not a Mary message. It's a Mary point. But what do we know about Mary that is true? Hey, guys, we cannot deny the following. Your point was this. Mary was favored by God. You say, Jeff, you don't sound like you're saying a lot of good things. Hey, I'm not saying anything Ugly about Mary other than truth, trying to correct some errors. But now let's notice what the Word of God says. 
Mary is highly favored by God. Highly favored by God. Look at verse number 28. Luke chapter 1 verse 28. This angel is named. So God sends Gabriel to Galilee, the city of Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man named Joseph. Verse number 28. This is Gabriel. And he came to her and said, greetings. Picture this, guys. Picture this. This really happened. The angel Gabriel, a very powerful being, comes to Mary, minding her own business, says, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. What kind of greeting is that? Who is this being? What is he saying? And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Watch that. Because of something that's already happened, Mary, you have found favor. Verse 28 again, greetings, O favored one. Verse number 30, Mary, you. Here's Gabriel from God. Mary, you have found favor. Do you know some take that passage? And the idea of favor is grace. Listen, it is grace. And you know how they wrongly interpret that? Is that Mary is like the storehouse and dispenser of grace instead of very clearly in the text, she's the recipient of grace. Is that clear? You're, you know what? The, let me boil it down. Mary, God really likes you. Oh. I was trying to wonder what kind of greeting. I've never heard anything. God really likes you. You are very favored. So now look at verse 31, because of what happened in the past, you have, and I'm going to break it up. Watch this. If you have your own Bible, watch verses 31 to 35. Eleven times the word will or shall. Eleven times in five verses. Watch what this angel says, Gabriel. Behold, because you're favored, because you're a recipient of grace, behold, you will conceive You will conceive in your womb and bear, not just a child, he calls it a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Gabriel's telling her what's going to happen because she's been favored. Verse 32, he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary is highly favored by God. You are going to be the carrier of the Christ child. You are going to be put in place of responsible as being the mother of the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed, promised one, the Redeemer to come. What else do we learn about Mary in this passage? Next, we learn that Mary is a young lady of tremendous faith. Tremendous faith. These next two things, hey, that, so far we've just read what happened to her. Now we're getting ready to see why is she so special. One, just because God chose to bless her and grace her and favor her. But now we're going to see what is unique and maybe clues as to why God chose and favored and blessed and graced Mary. Verse number 34, she had tremendous faith. Look at verse 34 to 38. And Mary said to the angel, remember we see these will, 31, you will conceive. 
You shall name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house and of his kingdom. There will be no end. Mary said to the angel, how will? How will? How is this going to happen? Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will. Here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. There is no sexual activity here. Just as the Holy Spirit hovered and moved and came upon the face of the deep and called the land up out of the waters and spoke vegetation and animal life and plant life, animal life, plant life, bird life, fish life and eventually took some of the land and made a man and from him took a rib and made a woman and, and breathed into them the breath of life. All of these, same way, here comes the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost hovering over her in the power of God. Verse number 30, 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, here's some proof. Your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. She's six months expecting who we know John the Baptist, the baby. Here's a key verse. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, here's the key. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Guys, this is a lady of tremendous faith. Real simple. Mary, here's what's going to happen. How is it going to happen? Holy Ghost is going to come upon you. Okay, let it be. Use me. If, that, if I'm the one to do this, let it be. I'm your servant. Just believed. Hey, guys, i got to ask you. I'm not preaching this message right here this morning, but I just want to throw it out to you. When you know that God has said something, you say, sometimes I don't feel like it. Yeah, me too. But even when you don't feel like it, does your soul and spirit say, this is true, it is going to happen, I don't feel like it? Do you just sink your teeth into that because you know God can't lie? Or do you start doubting Him? Mary is special because she just believed. Tremendous faith. But not only that, last thing I want you to see on Mary. She's a young lady of humility. Tremendous humility. Now I regret not having these verses on the screen because... I really need to give a little context. Watch. So Mary gets told by the angel that she's going to conceive and it's going to be of the Holy Ghost and it's going to be this child of the Son of God of the Most High. She immediately goes to visit Elizabeth because she's been told her, her relative who cannot have children, who's now old, never been able to have kids all her life. Now she's expecting six months along. She quickly makes her way to Mary. I'm sorry, to Elizabeth. And as she comes into the house to visit Elizabeth, she calls out a greeting to Elizabeth. And John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb starts leaping because he recognizes the voice of his Lord. So here are these two cousins, apparently, that are not even yet born, already have a connection. John the Baptist is going crazy. Man, I'm going to preach for you one day. And Jesus is just a little embryo. But Mary just saying this. And so Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother... Six months along at least, six, six and a half months along here, she gets filled with the Holy Ghost and she starts exclaiming, watch this, blessed are you among women. True. Talking to Mary, the younger Mary, the older lady, the godly lady, talking to the younger. But she's recognizing the Holy Spirit, something's going on. Blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And watch this, and blessed is she who believed 
that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. You're blessed because you, you're a faithful person. Watch verse 46. Watch it. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Guys, I might be wrong here. I'm not going to die for this. I might be wrong. But I think what happens here is basically this. I'm going to throw a little uninspired commentary into verse 46. I think it goes something like this. And Mary said, thank you. So there's Elizabeth. Oh, you're blessed. And the fruit of your womb is blessed. This is amazing. I'm not worthy of you coming in my house. You're great. You're, you're, you're highly favored among women. Thank you. But my soul magnifies the Lord. Already Elizabeth, again, filled with the Holy Spirit, so it's right to do. But Elizabeth is gushing over Mary, and Mary's deflecting. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, she's not bragging, she's telling a fact. Here we are today. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. That is what will happen. Verse 49 is why that will happen. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. It is not me, it's God what he has done for me. Guys, I'm going to tell you, I'm convinced of the spirit of this girl. If she was here today, she would absolutely be embarrassed, appalled at the Mary worship that has taken place. She'd straight, she didn't walk around telling people, hey, 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 I'm Mary. I, I'm Mary. People are going to worship me one day. You better do what I say. She never did that. Favored. Faithful. Humble. I want you to listen. We're getting ready to talk about Joseph, but I want to touch this. Areas where you know God has favored you, gifted you, do they cause you to be arrogant? Maybe you're here today and that's just Call it what it is. You look more attractive than other people. And that's a favor God has done to you. Does that cause your heart to be lifted with pride? Be honest. Maybe you're here today and you're a little smarter than other people typically are around you. You do really well. You're considered a bit of an intellectual. Do you feel haughty and proud because of God's favor? Maybe your family has some resources and you were just born into some resources. You had nothing to do with it. But because you have resources more than others around you, do you kind of inwardly, even outwardly in your words and the way you carry yourself, but especially inwardly, do you honestly feel like you're a little bit of something because God favored you? Or maybe you have a personality that is winsome. And you don't know what, people just are magnetic towards you. Do you get arrogant and proud? Or maybe you have a skill that our society values. You say, hey, I'm not the smartest guy around. I'm not the smartest girl around. But I know how to do this. And I do it well. And our society, and, and it's not, not something I inherited. But I've kind of been used to create some resources. Does it cause you to be arrogant and proud? Check your heart. If anybody was ever favored, this girl was favored. And her attitude is, it's what God has done. I'm just a servant. I magnify the Lord. It's a wonderful, wonderful lady. Back to Matthew chapter 1. Let's talk about Joseph. Joseph was a man of character. Now I preached on this passage two, a little over two years ago, December of 2016, on this same passage. And so I'm going to borrow a little bit from what we talked about then because you don't remember it and some of you weren't here. All right? Let's just be honest. You have no clue what we preached on back in December 2016. 
Joseph was a man of character. I need to do a quick backdrop. Y'all with me? Listen carefully. What we're about to... I'm going to read something from Bible Knowledge Commentary about this word betrothed. It's important for chapter 1. It's important for chapter 5. It's important for chapter 19. So I'm not going deeply into it right now, but I want you to understand, what is this whole betrothed? Because verse number 18 says the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. The Bible Knowledge Commentary writes the following about Hebrew betrothals. So remember this, put it deeply in you. It's going to come back into play in a few chapters. Quote, Marriages were arranged for individuals by parents. That's what they did. Marriages were arranged. And, get it, contracts were negotiated. They're signing. Marriages were arranged. Contracts were negotiated. After this was accomplished, the individuals, this is key, were considered married. And were called husband and wife. You saw that in the text. Legally. So let's think in. They're considered married, called husband and wife. They did not, however, begin to live together. Instead, the woman continued to live with her parents and the man with his for one year. Say, what? I thought they got married. They did. They're considered married. They are. They're called husband and wife. Yeah, they get together downtown. Hey, over there's your wife. Yeah, I'm getting ready to meet her. We're going to Starbucks. Oh, this is great. Okay. Why don't y'all just have coffee? Because we don't live together. Oh, hard times already. No. Just, we're not married all the way yet. What? Text, our, our quote continues. So what's with this one year? Catch it. The waiting period was to demonstrate the faithfulness of the pledge of purity given concerning the bride. Is your daughter pure? Yes, she is. You're positive. Stand by that. Let's put it in the negotiations. If she was found to be with child in this one-year period, she obviously was not pure but had been involved in an unfaithful sexual relationship. Therefore, the marriage could be annulled. Real clear. It would take a divorce. It would be called a divorce. Remember, they're legally married. If, however, the one-year waiting period demonstrated the purity of the bride, the husband would then go to the house of the bride's parents and in a grand processional march lead his bride back to his house. There they would begin to live together, remember, after a year, as husband and wife and consummate their marriage physically. So there's the, the context, unquote. There's the context. So they're betrothed. They're in somewhere in this one year. I don't know if they're three months, two months, six months. We don't know how far along they're into this one-year waiting period. But everything's set, and they're in the one-year waiting period. Guys, I'm going to say four things. We said four things about Mary. I'm going to say four things about Joseph. As we do, I want you to taste this and feel what kind of person is it. Watch. It's always grace when God uses a person. But what kind of person does God tend to use? Four things we notice about Joseph. Number one. Joseph was a man of integrity. Everybody listen. Joseph was a man of integrity. Mary gets told by the angel. She goes to see her relative Elizabeth. Apparently she spends a, t- a period of time there. John the Baptist is born and eventually Mary wakes, makes her way back to Nazareth. So here she comes back four months pregnant. I don't know if you remember being engaged. Not betrothed. It's not as strong as that. Do you remember being engaged? 
how would you have felt, guys, if when, during your engagement, she takes a two or three month trip and comes back three or four months pregnant? Well, here's the kicker. Joseph knows that's not him. He had nothing to do with that. And so all the evidence is telling him his bride, his wife, has been unfaithful to him. Please understand, there is no way this young man, they didn't have a Bible, they didn't have a copy of the Bible in their hands. They didn't have a New Testament. They're living the book of Matthew. They don't have the book of Matthew. There's no way he could have imagined or would have imagined what you already know. You say, I already know where this is going. He didn't. All he knows is the girl that he's married to, his bride, is four months pregnant. And he's hurt. And he's really wounded. And he's feeling betrayed. But above all of that, listen, young people, listen. Joseph was a man of convictions. And because he had these convictions, and they're really convictions, as a man of integrity, his mind, his heart says, though I don't want to do that, this was never my plan, I must divorce this girl. She's lied, she's broken our contract, our negotiation, she's broken our marriage, she's committed fornication against me, I must divorce her. Why? Because he's a man of integrity. Guys, I want to say this, integrity matters. Integrity matters. Here's a man who is going to disrupt his life because it's the right thing to do. I want to ask you, would you disrupt your life if it was the right thing to do? Would you, same, same idea, rephrase it. Would you do the right thing if you knew it would disrupt your life? You know what most people in 2019? Ah, I don't want to cause a bunch of problems. Second thing we notice about Joseph, I alluded to it in the first reading. Joseph was a man of compassion. The phrase really struck with me. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame. Joseph, guys, he's a man of compassion. This next sentence, I want you to write it, I want you to go home, and I want you to think about it. Because Joseph proves it is possible to be just and compassionate. How many people do you know that live godly? Why don't you think of a person? Who do you know that like this person, they really live a life of conviction, a life of integrity, a godly life in align with, alignment with the Word of God. And I want to ask you this, watch. How many people do you know that live that kind of life who also come across as very compassionate toward those who do not live a godly life? Because I know some who on the outside and even, even the way they live and even the way they, they message the Christian life, it's godly separated, consecrated, different, and they sure come across as judgmental. Joseph is not that at all. Joseph is a just man, but he's also a compassionate man. Get the, get the feeling. He's shamed. He's betrayed. He's hurt. All he has to do, take her to the city gate. I've got my paperwork. I need this nullified. I need a divorce. Your name's Joseph? Yes, sir. Mary, you can imagine, how's that go? Young man, why are you asking for, oh, okay, never mind, okay, yeah. Sir, are you saying this is not your doing? I'm positive this is not my doing, that is why I'm getting a divorce. Young lady, he says it's not his doing, is that correct? Yes, sir, it is not his, but I don't want to hear your story. Sir, she's got some story about the Holy Spirit, and I just don't know what's going on. 
Okay, yeah, I understand. Sorry this has happened to you, young man. Here's yours. You ought to be ashamed. And that's how it would have gone. And in a little while, everybody would have heard Joseph divorced Mary, and he would have been vindicated, and she would have been shamed. But here's the key. Joseph's hurt, Joseph's betrayed, but Joseph's goal, I don't want her shamed. I have to divorce because he's a just man. I have to do this. How can I do this without shaming her? Guys, quick confession. Earlier confession, I tend to downplay Mary and baptism and membership a little too much. But here's a more sober confession. I tend to get caught up in my own things. My own trial or struggles or pain or to-do list. And I won't even notice others. Won't notice it or really when I do notice it, I don't always consider their struggle, their pain, their trial, their overwhelming to-do list. Why? Because I'm so involved in mine. This guy convicts me because here he is hurt and betrayed, shamed, And it doesn't say he loves her, but it's very clear that he does because his heart is going toward, I don't want her shamed. Well, young man, it's going to get, I know, I'm thinking, how can I do this? I want both. I want to be just, but I want to be compassionate. Third thing I noticed about Joseph. He was a man of humility. Go, if you would, John chapter 8. He was a man, I told you we'd have three passages today. Here's the third one. and We'll be there just briefly and we'll be back to Matthew. John chapter 8. Joseph's a man of great humility. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? Follow the thought. Joseph is a man of integrity. That's why he's called a just man. That's why he has to divorce. But Joseph knows human nature. And he knows, here this angel tells him to take Mary as his wife. If I do that, then everyone in town is going to see that she's having a child during our betrothal period. They will assume I'm going to divorce her because I'm a just man. If I don't divorce her, then everyone's going to consider and assume that I am the father of the child, that I was the one who committed the fornication, that I couldn't wait. And they're going to go through. Here's a man who's going to go through life with a cloud hanging over him. Maybe John 8 gives a little picture of that. I don't have verse 39 on the screen, but Jesus tells some of his opponents, Abraham is our, they tell Jesus, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, if you really were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now, he's telling his opponents, you seek to kill me. You seek to kill me, a man who's told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Literally, he's accusing them of being children of the devil. So verse 41, they said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. Guys, it may be as simple as we're the true, we're we're descendants of, of Isaac. We're not from Ishmael. But guys, I think what they're really saying is somewhere a version of this. You accusing us not being Abraham's kids? Hey, we're legitimate. We're Jews. We're 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 in the bloodline. We have paperwork. We have pedigree. Don't you insinuate that about us? And I think what they're saying here in verse number 41. We were not born of sexual immorality. I think it's this. Hey, you know what? We've done actually a little checking on you. We know you were born down in Bethlehem, but you're really from up in Nazareth. And we did a little digging up there. You know what we found out? Your mom and your dad had to get married before you were born. At least we weren't born of sexual immorality. You were. 
Jeff, what's your point? Joseph knows by obeying God, he's going to go through life with this cloud of suspicion that he's the one who committed fornication before his marriage was official. And yet, what does he do as we make our way back to Matthew? He follows through. He obeys the command of the angel. Why? Because this angel tells Joseph, hey, Joseph, listen, you ever heard that passage in Isaiah? Which one? You know the one where the virgin shall conceive and bear a son? Ah, seems like I've heard it a few times. They've alluded to it down at the synagogue. Joe, your wife is that virgin. And so that tells us the fourth thing about Joseph. He's a man of obedience. Verse number 24, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he did those three things. Guys, real quick, look back at verse 21. Look at verse 21. Three things the angel says very authoritatively. Joseph, she will. You don't want her to bear a child. I get it. It's not in your plan. She will bear a son. Next thing he says, you shall. Joseph, you are going to name the child. And Joseph, though you're not his biological father, when you name him, in essence, that is you adopting him, he is not your biological child. He is your legal child. And as such, he is in the line, the royal line of David. And thus, Jesus is in the line of David, not only through Mary, but also through Joseph. And then the angel says, and he will. Catch it, guys. Look this way. She will. You will name him. And him, again, read between the lines. Joseph's not going to live to see it. But is is it going to look like Jesus is saving his people from his sins? But he will save his people from their sins. You say, what happened after Joseph woke up? He obeyed. He married her. He doesn't have sex with her until after Jesus is born. And then he names the child Jesus. Real quick before I hit the third main point today. Would y'all remember this? Do y'all know the two people we're talking about so far are the age of our high school kids? High schoolers? These young people had conviction and integrity and faith and compassion and humility and obedience. And that's the kind of people God uses. Number three, the main point today. Mary is favored. Joseph has character, but Jesus is the promised son. He's the one who fulfills the scripture. He's the promised son. Our text today makes... Three things very evident. Number one, makes it very evident that Jesus is the physical son of Mary. So the birth of Jesus Christ took place. And he was born. It happened. Proving that Jesus is the physical son of Mary. So I want us to be real plain. I know we just did Christmas. So I want to say it again. Everybody taste this. Jesus is... A man. Jesus is a man. Jesus is a real man. He's just as human as any person in here. He's a human like you. You say, wait a minute, isn't he ruling and reigning? The person ruling and reigning in the universe is a human being. Jesus is a man. But here's what you got to understand. He didn't look like God. He grows up in the city of Nazareth. Think of him from his toddler, 7, 8, 9, 10 years old, 11, 12 years old, running around playing. No one in Nazareth has a clue. There is no visible difference between Jesus and all the other kids. As a teenager, doing all that teenagers do, there is no visible difference between Jesus and anyone else. 
He looks just normal. Why? Because he is a human being. Literally in his own house, his brothers and sisters do not know who he is. Only Joseph and Mary know who he is. He gets into his 20s. He's working, no doubt, and he's a carpenter. And we don't know how long Joseph was around, but apparently Joseph's probably gone by this point. And he's got his own business, and he's doing things like that. No one in town has a clue who he is, why he looks like everyone else. When he's in his early 30s, a Samaritan woman talks to him. You know what she sees? A man. She recognizes him as a man. Furthermore, watch, a Jewish man. He is a man. He's going to be tempted by Satan. Watch. Tempted to what? Sin. You say, whoa, 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 Jeff, you're crossing. No, no, no. Sin is tempting. Really tempting to Jesus. Why? Because he's a man. He's going to get tired. He's going to get sleepy. He's going to get hungry. Why? Because he's a man. He's going to weep. He's going to hang on a cross and he's going to get really thirsty and they're going to cut him and 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 cut him. Cut him him on his back and he's going to bleed. Why? Because he's a man. Listen, here's my point. God does none of those things. God does none of those things. God doesn't look like a man. He doesn't doesn't look Jewish. God doesn't look Jewish. God doesn't get tempted by sin. God does not get hungry or tired. God doesn't weep. God doesn't thirst. God doesn't bleed. But Jesus does. And there's somebody here today and you're feeling really weak and you're feeling some pain and you're feeling temptation. Somebody here, you're like, I've got strong temptation. You and I are not going through anything that Jesus doesn't know full well what it felt like. He's the physical son of Mary. But he's the unique son of God. Number two, he's the unique son of God, Emmanuel. Verse number 20, as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. That which is conceived. Guys, I don't understand it. A lot of people choke, not physically. They choke on the doctrine of the virgin birth. They really do. I don't understand that. It's like they'll believe most of the Bible, but they've come to this, and it's like, now that's physically impossible, and they try to explain it away. And all I can come up with is they don't understand that God is the creator of the world, and so if he created the world, this is not a hard thing for him to do this. Or maybe they believe, yes, he created the world, it wouldn't be a hard thing, but they must have a, a theology that God is way off uninvolved and not involved in this. This is not a hard thing. I'm not downplaying the virgin birth. I'm just saying God didn't strain when he caused Mary to conceive by the Holy Spirit. Again, nothing sexual happened here. It's just a hovering of the Holy Spirit over Mary. She was not expecting. Now she is expecting, and this will be the Son of the Most High God. These people who choke on this, guys, I'm going to tell you, they read Isaiah 7 that is talked about there in verse number 23, and they start haggling and debating over the word virgin. Well, the word word virgin that's used in Isaiah in the Hebrew, it can mean young lady or a young maiden of marriageable age. It doesn't have to mean that she hasn't had sex. Okay, argue that all you want. Matthew chapter 1 makes it real clear that this is a young lady of marriageable age that has never had sex. It is really, really clear. In fact, I'd go so far as to say if, a, if an earthly man had a physical part in the physical formation of Jesus' body, then it would be tantamount to blaspheming the Spirit to say the Holy Spirit did this if it was in fact a man that did this and Matthew would be way out of line. But Matthew is not. He's right on point. So the key. 
key to the whole Christmas story is this conception. The birth is good. The birth is key. The birth is just like every other child except the surrounding events down in Bethlehem. The conception is what is different. Listen. Jeff, what happened? We're talking about the unique Son of God, Emmanuel. We can't grasp what happened at the conception. We really can't. So I'll just say a couple of sentences. Here's one. The infinite... My arms aren't big enough. Okay, you ready? The infinite became finite. I want you to picture two gymnasiums. Big gym. And over here you have one five-gallon bucket. It's empty. And in this big gymnasium the size of two basketball courts, you have 10,000 five-gallon buckets, and they're all filled with water. And I'm not talking about the Carbonero effect, okay? I'm not talking about that. Those of you know, how many know what I just said? I ain't talking about little magic tricks. I'm not talking about whatever the carpenter guy, what is his name out in Las Vegas? Maybe not. What was his name? Copperfield. Yeah, I'm not talking about that. Picture 10,000 buckets, five gallons of water in each, 50,000 gallons of water. Here's an empty bucket. And your task is to pour all 10,000 five-gallon buckets filled with water into one bucket and don't spill over and get them all in there. And you're saying, that is physically impossible. You cannot do that. Sooner would we understand someone taking 10,000 buckets and putting them into one bucket than to understand how the infinite God became finite in Mary's womb. I want to ask you a question. Put yourself on a line. Don't spread your arms. You might hit somebody beside you. You have your left your left, your right, eternity past, eternity future. Which one's longer? Question. Eternity past and eternity future. Eternity goes and goes and goes and goes. Which one's longer? If by my action I fooled you into thinking, well, of course it's eternity. What now? Wait, you said eternity. Wait, what? That's the answer. Wait, what? That's our answer. What happened here at this conception was eternity past and eternity future met 2,000 years ago in the womb of Mary. The eternal was subjected to time. The infinite became finite. Here's the key. God became human. He's called Emmanuel at the end of verse number 23, which means God with us. Please hear this sentence. You can write it afterward. Emmanuel, God with us. Hear this. Guys, it does not mean... Hey guys, good news. God is with us because of what Jesus did. That's true. That's not the best way. Hey, we got some good news because of what Jesus did. God's willing to be with us now. Here's the truth. It's not God is with us because of Jesus. God is with us in Jesus. God is with us as Jesus. He is God. Made man. With an earthly parent, Mary, and a divine parent, God, through the activity of His Holy Spirit. And so I have these thoughts. These were my two main points at Christmas. I think it was the 23rd this year. I, I can't get away from it. I'm going to hit it a little different. What is this whole thing? What's the point? I said, we're going to see what happened, how it happened, the why. Really get the why. God with us. Y'all with me? Watch. Why did God come be with us in Jesus, as Jesus? He came to be with us to reveal God more fully. 
Jesus reveals the nature of God more fully. I really want you to get this point. These next two things are the most important in the message today. I don't know where you're at in your Bible reading. This year I began reading Genesis 1 through 11, and then my reading plan took me over to Job. And now I'm back into Genesis. While I was in the book of Job, I'll say this. Have you ever read the book of Job? You guys ever read the book of Job? It's really hard to interpret. Really hard to interpret. Why? I'm going to give you two reasons. Reason number one, we're talking about an extreme, extreme case. A very extreme. We're not talking about a guy who went through some hard times. We're not talking about a guy who got, you know, a bad report. He kept getting bad reports. He loses everything and he has all this physical pain. I mean, he literally wants to die. He hates the day he was born. He's begging God to kill him. I mean, really, really extreme things. Emotionally, physically, relationally, all across the board, financially. I mean, just the worst of the worst that you've ever heard of in the Old Testament. It's really extreme. Here's the second reason the book of Job. I want to invite you. Be very, very careful. Why? you got to be careful when you just go pull a verse out of Job and decide, I'm going to do a, a, a little devotional for the guys. Or I'm going to do a devotion for the girls. Or I'm going to give a devotion for, for the young people or for the kids. I found me a verse in, where is that in the Bible? And you get your concordance and you look it up and it's over there and it's in one of these speech sections and you pull a verse out and you're ready to go teach. You say, well, what's the big deal there? It's the inspired Word of God. Careful because the five human speakers have errors. All five of them. You say, who are these five people? Well, it's Job's three friends. And it's this, they're, they're older. And then it's this younger guy, Elihu, and Job himself. Not everything Job says lines up with the rest of Scripture. You've got to be careful. It's an extreme case, and you can't just pull out and say, oh, I found, I'm going to build my life on this text. You've got to be careful. It's hard to understand. So I mentioned Job has these three friends, and then he has this younger man named Elihu who pipes in at the end of the book. I want to punch him in the mouth. But anyway, that's a whole other thing. Here's the problem. Job's three friends and Elihu, get this, just cannot envision a scenario where God would allow such deep, heavy suffering unless... It's to punish Job's sin. And so they just keep on. Job, it's your sin, buddy. You've got major sin in your life. And he's like, I promise I don't. I'm not saying I'm sinless, but I don't have open sin. If I did, I would confess it. Believe me, I wish it was that. I just want this to stop. I Literally, I want to die. Every night is a long night. People are running away from me. My skin is falling off. It's turning, it's turning a certain color. It's falling off. I, I look horrible. I'm in pain all day long. My wife's telling me just go ahead and curse God and die, but I can't curse God. You guys keep telling me just to confess and get right with God. I would if I could. I promise you I would. I want a meeting with God. I want to ask him why is he allowing this to happen to me. And they're like, there you go, Job. You're way out of line. You know, just, just come clean, man. Get right with God. He's like, I would. They won't let up. Here's the problem. Listen, they were wrong. They didn't know that God had a conversation with Satan about Job. This is key. We know that Satan causes these things, but ultimately, bigger behind that, it is God who is allowing all of these horrific things to happen to Job. It is God who is allowing all of this, and they don't know it. They just keep harping on the sin thing. And he doesn't have. God is not punishing him for sin. So I want you to understand this. 
That, hear this. They were ignorant of some of the ways of God. They're ignorant of some of the ways of God. And they just keep going bulldozing forward with their teaching. Blasting Job. And he's holding his line. I promise I'm not, I don't have sin. You must. Nothing like this happens to people like that unless it's sin. You just, then what is the sin? We don't know. We can't find it. But you have it. You know why they're ignorant of some of the ways of God? Same reason a lot of people are ignorant of the ways of God today. Watch. It's not logical. That would make no sense if God was allowing this and you don't have sin. You have to have sin. They didn't use the word, but I'm telling you, read their, read their speeches. It would be, the, that's not fair. That can't be God doing that. That wouldn't be fair. Furthermore, they have this idea. That doesn't line up with how we imagine God. But the fact is, it is God who's allowing this, but in their mind, it can't be that because we just don't imagine God being that way. And furthermore, that would not match what we've been taught up until this point. By the way, they didn't have a Bible. That would not match what we've been taught. And then along comes Jesus, 2,000 years later. And Jesus reveals, God's ways are not our ways. And that God does not answer to our logic. He doesn't answer to our fairness. God doesn't answer to our preconceived notions. He doesn't answer to our level of teaching. God doesn't answer to our, lo our logic. God doesn't say, hey, Jeff, yeah, your mom's back in the hospital. Well, God, you owe it to me. She has to get... He doesn't owe me that. He doesn't owe you anything. He didn't owe Job anything. So along comes Jesus, proving God's ways are not our ways. And ultimately, here's what we find. Watch. God poured out and poured out and poured out His wrath for all of humanity's sin, all of your sin, all of mine, all of people through time and those that haven't even been born yet. All of His wrath for all of our sin, He poured it out, listen, on a completely innocent person. An innocent person. Proving God will do what you think He will not do for His glory and for His love. And you hear that and you say, whoa, whoa, time out, hang up, hold on. Are you saying God will punish innocent people? I'm saying God has punished an innocent person. He punished His Son, Jesus Christ. He punished Himself. Why? Because He loves you. Because He loves me. Jesus proves this. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I'm telling, talking to myself because my day will come. The sooner we understand, Job, that we are made things, that God owes us nothing but justice, then everything good that he gives us is grace. And we're just made for his glory. And we cannot let trials cause us to question God's love. And the evidence of that is in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, God has punished an innocent person. The last thought this morning is, he's the physical Son of Mary. He's the unique Son of God, Emmanuel. And He's the Savior of His people. Verse number 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Hey guys, I'm not going to cover it like I did back in December. Can I say this? Jesus, the Greek equivalent of the Old Testament, Joshua, same line, same thought, you hear Joshua, you hear G Jesus in his day, they would have heard Joshua, the same thing, just Greek version. What does it mean? 
Yahweh the Lord saves. Yahweh the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Jesus means the Lord saves. Jesus here, his name does not mean the Lord saves us merely through Jesus. Again, I said this earlier, a little different watch. It means Yahweh the Lord saves us as Jesus. Yahweh the Lord saves us in Jesus. He is Yahweh. He is the Christ. He is the Savior. It is God doing it, not just through him, but as him to us. This is the key. The mission of Christ is not just to reveal God. It is ultimately to save his people from their sins. And so we have this word, save Save. What does save mean? Get this. Save carries the idea, literally the word here, they would use this in the idea of someone who's lost. I had a boy a few weeks ago, a couple weeks a week or whatever it was, over in Craven County, North Carolina, we used to do some bear hunting over there, really bad area. Kid was lost for a period of time, they finally found him. He got saved. He was lost. He got saved. Someone that's lost needs saved. What's the word saved mean? It means someone who's in bondage, someone who's a prisoner, someone who's a captive. They're in slavery. They don't have any freedom. Guess what? They need saved. Someone needs to go release them and give them freedom. To be saved is points to someone who's sick, so sick that they're dying. Hey, doc, man, you saved my life. Tell the surgeon what you did. Save my life. The medicine you put me on, literally, it saved my life. In a sense, that's true. A person that is sick, so sick that they're dying, man, they need healed. They need saved. The word saved ultimately also means this. This is a person who's done so much wrong. They're separated from society. They're put in what's called a death row. They're living under condemnation, and they're going to be killed for their crimes. Ultimately, what they have to have, boy, they're going to have to, the governor will have to save them. What that means is they need pardon. They need forgiveness. Now, you're sitting here this morning. There's somebody here today, somebody here today. You've never seen yourself as needing saved. But the Bible teaches that you and I and all of us were born aimlessly wandering through life on a big wide road, lost. Spiritually, watch, headed for hell. That's not a funny little word, a real place, a place of torments for eternity. You're born on a road for hell and you don't even know it. You're lost. You need found. The Bible points to us as spiritually in bondage. Captives. Slaves. Slaves to what? Slaves to sin. You know what that means? You cannot stop sinning. Why? You are a slave to sin. You're in bondage to it. You have no freedom from it. It controls your life. And it's not just one or two things. Your life is just filled with, you're like, I just I can't control myself sometimes. Why? You're a captive to sin. You need free. You need saved. The Bible talks about us as our soul is sick. Man, there's somebody here today, you would outwardly, you look fine, but if you could somehow have spiritual glasses and put them on and see how black and sin and dying is your soul, you would see, wow, I have a real problem. I need some healing here. And we're all born under this condemnation of an ultimate condemnation at the great white throne of God where God will say to the sinner, the lost, captive, can't stop sinning, Sick soul with a dead spirit, 
bind them hand and foot and cast them into the lake of fire. And that's exactly what will happen. Why? Because you're under the condemnation of God and you need saved. Very quickly, look at verse number 21. Watch it. Look at it. The angel says, she will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Why Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. From their sins. Not an original outline as we complete this, but a very important one. I don't know who to give credit. Everybody's seen it. Did you write it down? What does this mean? You ever been saved from your sins? What does it mean the Bible says Jesus saves his people from their sins? What it means, guys, is he saves from sin's penalty. It's that last thing I just said. We're born under a condemnation sentence of being separated from God for eternity as we are. This is so key. Say, Jeff, when does this happen? Look at the words. Immediately. Completely. When Jesus saves us from sin, he is saving us from the penalty of sin. Jeff Bartlett will never be condemned. Jeff Bartlett, I I will not stand at the great white throne judgment. It's not, not because I'm better than you. I will not stand at the great white throne judgment. I will not hear bind him hand and foot, cast him in the lake of fire. Why? Because Jesus has saved me from the penalty of sin. Second thought, equally true. Verse 21, he shall save his people from their sins. What does that mean? From sin's power. Literally putting a buffer, an ability, a victory, freeing you from its bondage. i got to ask you. There's many, many, many right here this morning. If I were to say, hey, are you a Christian? Have you ever put your faith and trust in Christ? And you'd say, yes, I absolutely am. i got to ask you, are you experiencing a pulling away from sin's power? Or are you feeling like sin's power is just getting stronger and stronger and stronger in your life? You say, oh, it's getting stronger and stronger. Careful, you may not be saved. Because Jesus saves people from their sins. He don't save us not just in our sins. He saves us out of our sins. He saves us from sin's penalty. He saves us from sin's power. Ultimately, he will save us from sin's presence. Not in this life. It'll never happen in this life. But the day will come in heaven. Why? Because Jesus saves his people from their sins. Would you bow your heads just for a moment this morning? Would you bow your heads? In a moment, we'll sing a song. Before we do... I want to ask you, I want everyone, I know our musicians are moving to this spot, but I want to invite everyone here as you have your heads bowed, your eyes closed, really honestly because it matters, your soul is in the balance. I ask it often, and I don't ask it for you to be shaken in your your faith, but I just want to ask you very simply, are you sure, 100% sure, you have trusted Christ? I'm not going to have you raise your hand if you say, oh, I've trusted Christ. Here's all I want want you to do. I want you to consider and honestly evaluate. If you say there's a time where you've trusted Christ, then I want you to answer inside yourself, do you fear the judgment? When I mention the great white throne judgment, this is a fact. This is a real event that is going to happen. If it doesn't happen, the Bible's a lie. As you hear that, as you read the book of Revelation 21, Matthew 25, and other places like that, and you hear about hell, is there something in you that is scared and fearful of the judgment? If that is so, then are you sure you have been saved? Because if you've been saved, you've been saved from sin's penalty. You should have no fear. But if you're sitting there saying, honestly, I always get a little nervous. I'm about 80% sure, but i got about 20% of something in me that gets really scared when I think about eternity. Then are you saved? Christ saves us from sin's penalty. He can't lie. I would also ask you this, Christian, 
I'm not having you raise your hand. But if you say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I know I've been saved. Christ changes things. Do you sense a progressive movement toward God? Yes, we sin and we sin daily. Sin still tempts us. But the longer you live the Christian life, do you sense a progressive movement toward Christ and away from your sin because He is saving? You say, I have found it to be true. I'm not going to raise my hand, but I have found it to be true. He is saving me from sin. If you can't say yes to both of those things, then you need to really evaluate this morning. Have you ever really just trusted Christ? I know I do it all the time. But I just hope that one of these times that someone who maybe has resisted or complicated it will just in the moment finally say, you know what, I'm going to settle this. I'm going to hear the word of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish. He will save us from sin's penalty. And I'm going to put my trust in him today. And I'm not going to doubt it. And I'm not going to fear the judgment. So how would I do that? Just... Talk to God right now. Bring God into your sphere of awareness and confess. God, I am a sinner. God, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you. I violated your nature. I deserve your judgment. But God, I believe your word. I don't understand it all, but I believe it. And I believe Jesus came to save me from my sins. I ask you today, Jesus, will you save me right now? Right now, will you save me from my sins? Just before we sing, Christian, is yours a life of faith? Is your faith shaken? Hey, be like this little girl who said, let it be to me. If that's your plan, let it be. Be like this little girl and this young man. Just live humbly. God called Joseph to do something very, very hard. He didn't, he didn't want to do. Man, he's going to have a stigma. People are going to talk about him. He's going to look less in people's eyes, but he was so surrendered to God, he humbly obeyed. These two kids, these young people, just obeyed the Lord with their integrity and compassion and love and lived in obedience.